did African Americans react to slavery? What factors, particularly religion, might shape those reactions, even making them violent? Dr. Patrick Breen, in his carefully researched and cogently written The Land Shall Be Deluged in Blood, published by Oxford University Press in 2015, sheds light on these questions through a meticulous study of the slave rebellion led by Nat Turner. With its careful attention to the historiography on the rebellion, its considerations of the veracity of the confessions of Nat Turner, the primary source that serves as the center of studies on the rising, and its treatment of how churches reacted to the rising, this work is not only of interest to scholars, but could easily be adopted into a college-level survey of American history or a course introducing the historian's craft. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Breen about his new book, The Land Shall Be Deluged by Blood. Patrick, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So, I wonder if we can start off um, how we usually start off. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, um, I'm a historian up at Providence College, so I'm up in New England, uh, where I've been for 15 years now. Uh, but I did my education actually in the South. I got my PhD from the University of Georgia. Um, I've been studying slavery and uh, slave society since the uh, since actually college. I was at, uh, at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, and there was a visiting professor coming to town, and uh, my advisor, who knew I was interested in history, said, you know, I think you might want to take this guy. And uh, I did, and the guy's name was Eugene Genovese, and one of the big names in African-American history. And once I had taken his class, I was interested in this material and, and kept studying it and, you know, went to grad school, uh, wrote my dissertation, wrote my book, got a job, and now this is what I do. Well, excellent, excellent. And, and how did you come to write then this book in particular? What was it that, that drew you to, to Nat Turner and to write a monograph about him? Well, I had been studying Virginia uh, in part because I had been working in Virginia sources because from the beginning, I had been in Williamsburg and in Virginia. And um, so I was trying to think of something that would allow me to do uh, a, a, a narrow event, to explore a narrow event, to really see how power existed in a slave society. And, um, you know, I was just banging my head trying to think of, well, what could I do? I don't want it to be too big. I can't do the Civil War because you can't do that. It's just too big. I want something narrow, but that might allow us to what actually happens in slavery. And uh, I kept banging my head, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me, of course, Nat Turner was the exact thing that I wanted to do. It had been sitting before me in plain sight. In fact, it, one of the funny things was uh, when I was in high school, uh, one of my summer reading books was William Styron's The Confessions of Nat Turner. Um, so I had been well familiar with this material for a long time. Uh, and I remember reading it as a, uh, as a 17 or 18-year-old and just reading the first 10 or 15 pages thinking, is this real? What really happened? And as it turns out, I went through and uh, did a dissertation writing about it and then wrote a book about it. Well, and that goes to the, the center of your book because there's a lot of controversy about the veracity of the confession, confessions of Nat Turner. So could you tell us, and that's key because it's like a, a central document for the uh, rising. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Right. This is the this is the actual actual key to understand uh, the revolt. Um, after the revolt, Nat Turner is captured and um, taken to jail, where he's going to be held for about a week till he's tried. And while he's at jail, he he purportedly gives his confession to a white lawyer named Thomas R. Gray. Thomas R. Gray um, writes this thing. It's it's a short confession. It's you know. 15, 16 pages, and gets it off to the publisher, and it's published within a month. And for, originally, people thought, well, this is just the confessions of Nat Turner. Here's a guy that's about to die. Someone decided to write it up, and it's his confessions. Uh, but this became obviously problematic, especially once we started focusing on the, you know, as a, we as a profession, historians started focusing on the voices of the powerless. Uh, was this really Nat Turner's voice? Was it Thomas Gray pretending to be Nat Turner? Um, so in about the 1960s, uh, people started questioning the confessions of Nat Turner. And 
Um, when William Styron's novel came out in 1967, there was a novel based on this uh, on, on this document. Uh, it immediately uh, this was a best-selling book, you know, New York Times bestseller. It was uh, it was won the Pulitzer Prize in history. This incredibly contentious because he basically said, "I take the confessions as true, and I will add anything else that I, I won't contradict the confessions, but I'll add anything else that sort of fits." I'm a novelist. And uh, William Styron was a, a liberal from Virginia. He had been educated at Duke, but was up in New York uh, or Connecticut at this point. And he basically wrote this book that infuriated a lot of uh, people who were into the Black Power movement in the late 1960s. And uh, so it generated a book called Ten Black Writers Respond. And basically, they did not like how Nat Turner was portrayed. This was an enormous um, fight for about five or eight years in the issues of the New York Review of Books. People are having at each other. Is this the confessions of Nat Turner real or not? And what can you rely on? The problem was people had their sides. I want to have a more political Nat Turner. I want to go with uh, Styron's Nat Turner. They had their point of view, and they would read the document sort of based on that. Um, they would use it opportunistically. And I thought that that was wrong. I thought that that was completely, you know, that, that didn't make sense. You can't sit there and say, you, he's wrong when he's saying this, but he's right when he's saying that. You know, how would you possibly know that? So one of the things I wanted to do when I started this project is I said, you know, i gotta, I got to be a little more systematic about this. If this is really Thomas R. Gray, we're not finding out about Nat Turner. We're finding out about what one sort of, educated white guy thought of the revolt, which, you know, is an interesting thing, and, you know, it would have been an interesting uh, an interesting project. The only problem was, as I kept working with the document, I ultimately convinced myself uh, that Gray did what the people at the time thought he did, which was actually take down Nat Turner's confessions. Uh, and there's a couple reasons that I was, you know, able to convince myself of this. Uh, you know, one thing is you can look at the document itself, uh, you, and this is readily available on the Internet. If anyone wants to look at it, they can. Uh, it, when you look at the internal evidence, you notice things like what Thomas Gray says in his account is different from what the, the stuff that's in quotes where Nat Turner's speaking. They disagree about stuff. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, well, if he was making it up, why would he dis- Why would he? contradict himself. Uh, but even more interesting, would Nat, uh, uh, Thomas Gray put insertions in the text? He, he sat there and he, he would put parent, parenthetical notes like, you know, Tom, uh, Nat Turner would say something like, you know, uh, there was a sign from God that we were going to start a revolt. And then in parentheses it would say the eclipse of the sun or something like that. And what's going on here is uh, Turner is saying something. Gray doesn't know what the sign is, and so he asked him, you know, and the men I most trusted. Gray asked, who are they? And then he writes it parenthetically. These parenthetical notes are incredibly important because it shows that he's willing to let Turner make a mistake. And ultimately, I think when you look at the story of the battle, um, the battle really, uh, what Gray knows about the battle is different from what Turner knows about the battle. And there's really a strong difference, you know, really sharp differences between the two. And that really allows us to see that what Gray is doing is taking that Turner's voice. So one way you can look at it is internally to the document. There's a lot of reasons. And there's much, much more. I mean, I wrote a whole chapter on this. Uh, But the other basic kind of argument is you can look at the extrinsic stuff, the stuff outside. you know, there's one thing, you know, the confessions are actually, Gray knows that people are going to wonder if this is authentic. The reason people are reading it is because it's supposed to be Nat Turner's voice. And so he's trying to find, he tries to put stuff in where people say, you know, this is actually the confessions of Nat Turner. The, 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 the clerk of the court writes an affidavit. Many of the justices sign an affidavit saying that it was read. Now, of course, these could be made up, but I think that there's really good reason to think that they weren't. Um, for example, when he puts together the list of the judges who sentenced Nat Turner to death, he does not include all the judges, including the person who read 
Pat Turner's confessions to the court. Now, if you're if you're going to be forging these guys' name and just sort of falsely signing their names onto this document, you'd include everyone. But he didn't. And my theory is the reason he didn't include them was because um, he didn't, couldn't get those guys' signatures. He was getting at they had left court. Uh, most of them had left court. Most of the judges whose signatures he got stayed around for the next case. And so he was able to get a bunch of signatures for the judges, but not all of them. Uh, so there's, you know, so when he puts stuff in, I tend to believe it. And then, then there's other accounts. Uh, one account says that uh, I was going to write more about the confessions. Nat Turner was speaking freely to people at the jail, says one newspaper article. And I was going to write more, but someone is writing these down verbatim. Which is so someone at the time is saying he's writing them verbatim. Now people have come up, and you can none of these are proofs that he, he did it. But when you look at the entire corpus and you look at it, ready to believe that he did it or didn't, I think that the weight of the evidence is strongly on the side that it is actually what Thomas R. Gray says, which is Matt Turner's own voice coming through us. This, which is really a makes it a remarkable document. I mean, some of the greatest sources we have in African American history, and especially the history of slavery, are slave narratives. Guys like Frederick Douglass, right? Their narratives. Well, this is the narrative of the most important slave rebel in American history. It's such a precious document. And I think of, as a profession, we've shied away from using it just because of the questions about its authenticity. I think it's a really far richer and stronger document, and it's really uh, well worth looking at. And so when I wrote my book, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to use this document. I'm going to sort of take it um, as what Nat Turner says. And he might not be right about everything, and he might, you know, there, there, there are mistakes in the confessions and confusions and all sorts of problems, and which I don't deny. You know, it's not like God's writing this. This isn't, this isn't you know, an omniscient point of view, but it is Nat Turner telling a, a story. It's telling, uh, Nat Turner telling his story, and it's such a precious thing that we have it. Excellent, excellent. And I, I found this very interesting, and I, I very much enjoyed. And for our, our, our um, audience, this is in the afterword of the text. So now that Patrick has, you know, I think established very well the veracity of this document um, and has written a book that, that uses that document a great deal, could you tell us, Patrick, how does your book then contribute to our understanding of Nat Turner's rebellion in particular and American slavery in general? Okay. Um, Nat Turner is really one of the most important figures in the historiography of American slavery. Um, and this is a long story. Nat Turner sometimes has been studied. He's famous. People have known about him even before the Civil Rights era, before the 1950s and 60s, when the historical profession started worrying about African-American history. He was, you know, he was a leader of a slave revolt. People, historians knew about this. Uh, so it's someone that, he's someone that is, that is, uh, the, the profession has had to handle and has a long tradition of handling. Um, my book is going to really refine our ideas about resistance. Initially, when slavery was um, taught, uh, the first generation of professional historians, you're, you're, you're going to be talking about the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, you're going to be talking about 1900. Um, the profession was, was um, not particularly interested in African-American history. The profession was frankly racist. Uh, so it wasn't particularly interested in African-American history, and it wasn't particularly interested in African-American agency. You know, obviously slavery becomes something that's really bad if slaves are people who basically have the same rights as whites. Now, in 1900, lots of people thought, well, maybe they're human or whatnot, but they certainly don't deserve the same rights as whites because they're inferior. You know, there was a lot of racism around. And so Nat Turner um, is this figure who's just created, who's outlandish. He doesn't really fit. It's someone, uh, there's a, a book written about him in 1900, written by a guy who's from Southampton, whose family had members who were, I think died in the revolt. This is, you know, this is not a sympathetic portrait of Nat Turner. And the point was, Nat Turner didn't really fit. What, his, what those white historians taught about slavery was it wasn't really a bad situation. It wasn't a terrible thing. U.B. Uh, Phillips, one of the uh, most important, the most important uh, scholar of American slavery uh, before the Civil Rights Movement, who was unsympathetic to the Civil Rights Movement, basically used the metaphor of a school. You know, slavery is like a school. It's not that bad. You don't have complete 
it's in a school, the teacher's in charge, and you're not. Why? Because you're inferior. And so he used that as the model. Um, when this view was being attacked, and it started, it was attacked by um, by radical historians and African American historians. One of the easiest places to attack that this was a good system and that people were happy under it and that African Americans weren't really agents, weren't really trying to change the system, is to look for the people who tried to resist. Uh, one of the interesting stories is W.E. Du Bois, um, the, the, the famous civil rights activist, um, had wanted to do a, uh, uh, a biography of Frederick Douglass. And, um, and he got turned down because his rival, uh, Booker T. Washington, was enlisted to do it. And so the publisher sort of goes back to him and says, well, is there anyone else you want to do? He says, well, yeah, sure, I'll do Nat Turner. And the publisher's like, no, this is not a good idea. It's 1900, we don't want to start celebrating um, someone like uh, Nat Turner. So they eventually convinced him, if you want to do a rebel, do, do John Brown. And he did that. Um, unfortunately, we never got Du Bois' take on uh, on Nat Turner. It would have been a, it would have been a great one. Uh, but Herbert Atheker, um, a communist historian, uh, got his master's in 1937 at Columbia University. Herbert Atheker was attacking the old historiography of guys like Phillips. He's saying, no, this is not a good system. This is not basically okay. We're not going to put up with it. And so he's trying to find examples of people who resist. The very first person you're going to hit on is Nat Turner. And he wrote his master's thesis on Nat Turner. He expanded it into a dissertation where he tried to show that many people tried to resist slavery, which, of course, they did. There were many people who tried to resist slavery. And so this really launched um, the the movement to really see slavery, um, slaves as people, as full human people who are autonomous and had their own, uh, you know, had were trying to do their own things. They were their own agents. Um, so Nat Turner's at the the, the, the the turning point of that. Now, I think the problem comes when, when you look at Nat Turner, you say, look, African-Americans didn't like slavery. African-Americans tried to fight slavery, which is true. But there's a movement to sort of create, make resistance the ultimate part of Af the African-American experience. That resistance is the heart and the soul, and it's what it means to be African-American. And I, it's not that I'm, I'm dissatisfied with that, because I think the African-American community, the African-American community in slavery is far more diverse than that. There's far many different responses, people going different places, and, and to sort of create sort of one blanket idea of what it means to be an African-American slave, to be an African-American slave is to be constantly resisting slavery, I think doesn't see how rich it is. African-American slaves did resist slavery, and others didn't, and there's a whole range of responses, and they have a whole lot of different reasons, and I think that the intricacy of these responses and the, and the intricacy of this world is something that we miss because historians in making their arguments have been trying to put resistance at the center of the African-American experience. And I, I think resistance belongs as a part of the African-American experience, but it's, it really warps the African-American experience, the experience of slavery, to sort of assume that basically for a couple hundred years you have the Civil War constantly being fought out in advance. It's not. It's not. There's, there's some people who are going to be doing this and there's some people who are not. And that's one of the things about what it means to live in an African-American society, to live in a slave society, is that not everyone's on the same page. And that's one of the things I think my story of the Nat Turner Revolt really, really shows. Yeah, I, and I think it shows that really well. And I, I'm sure that will come in over and over again as, our, as we continue through our interview. But for, for people who maybe aren't too familiar with the story, um, moving to your first chapter, Signs, could you tell us a little about who Nat Turner was as a person before the rebellion? Sure. Nat Turner was a slave who was born on October 2nd, uh, 1800. He was 31. Um, was 30 when the, the revolt started. Uh, 31 when he died. Um, he was a slave in Southampton County, Virginia. Southampton County is on the border uh, of Virginia and North Carolina, so Southern Virginia. And it's if you're thinking of the map of Virginia, it's about midway between 
Richmond and uh, Norfolk or Newport News, sort of on the southern coast, there, uh, the southern coast, southern border, right in the middle of um, Virginia. He was uh, married. He had a son uh, who we think is named Reddick. We don't. Uh, historians have offered various possibilities as to his wife's name. I'm not confident in the sources that we have. I don't think any historians have really shown us. Uh, And if I remember right, didn't he claim that God taught him how to read? Uh, no. Oh. no. Uh, he, he spoke to God, according to the right. confessions, uh, something that, uh, you know, this is one of the things I don't have a problem believing. Uh, but he said, uh, he said he was, he, it was a, well, okay. he said that it was a, uh, a miracle that he learned how to read. He wasn't taught. And so he took it as a sign of God that he learned how to read. Now, this is one of the places he disagrees with Gray. When Gray writes it, he says his parents taught him how to read. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, okay. Um, you know, it's, he didn't believe any of the stuff that, 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 that uh, Turner was saying, the religious stuff um, Gray clearly didn't believe. But he did see it as a, uh, he did see it as a, you know, a sign that he was chosen. Because he really did. He thought, he thought he was a chosen person. He was a, a messianic figure. And his exact messian, a messianic status is sort of hard to figure out, you know, with, but he certainly saw himself as, uh, as someone who was responsible for, um, being, being, uh, you know, doing what God told him to do, which included starting the revolt. So, um, you know, when he gets, when he gets going with this, uh, when he gets told by God, he gets a series of visions from God. And in fact, one of the visions is really interesting. And I, 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 I make a fair bit of this in my book, um, he escaped slavery once, um, when he's a younger man in his 20s. Um, now, this isn't that unusual. Other people had escaped. In fact, his father had escaped slavery, at least according to the confessions. And so when he does, um, he goes away for a month. And eventually he comes back. And, you know, it's like, why did you come back? Well, you know, there's lots of reasons you come back from running away from slavery, you know, I don't like slavery, but I don't like sleeping with the snakes either, so, you know, I go back, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hungry, or, you know, whatever, there's lots of reasons to go back, but when he got back, he told the people, the reason he went back was because the Spirit told him to, and the interesting thing in the confessions is he says, and then the Negroes found fault and murmured against me. Now, they didn't believe him. Now, you know, they, it was funny. As he was growing up, people were willing to believe that this guy was sort of religiously inspired. And then when he started saying, well, now God sent me back to slavery, they're like, no, no, <laughs> that's not the God. God, is, that, that's, not, that's not our God. And so he, um, he you know, he became, I, I argue, um, certainly he was aware of disagreements in the black community. He knew that everyone wouldn't follow him just because he said, and this is one of the things that makes him different from some sort of, some of the religiously inspired people who, you know, are involved in these terrible events like the mass murders or whatnot. You know, they're out there and they're basically trying to force people to do what they say. Uh, he's not. He understands that people aren't going to be working just because he says it's not a religion. He, he, he 
romantically, but he understands that he does not have religious authority over most people. So he is perfectly willing to accept people who don't agree with him, who disagree with him. He knows that this is going to be how the revolt takes place. Not everyone's going to come because they believe that Nat Turner is sort of this divine prophet that everyone has to follow. Right, and, and how does the, the this you know this religious aspect how does that that shape the origins of the rebellion well what happened is um he had a series of religious experiences uh visions you know including the one i talked about where he was uh, he ran away um and then ultimately you know he gets this vision where he sees the clouds in the sky and he sees black armies and white armies fighting against each other so i like, oh, the idea of race war starts creeping in although uh, it must be said at this point his very first disciple is a white guy, Brantley. Yeah. It's not. It's not like he's a, he's preaching race warrior um, stuff. It's or, or race war. He's you know he's a visionary and you know he's sort of on the fringe, I think. Um, but in February he, he sees a, an eclipse of the sun and he and he takes that as God saying it's time for him to get his recruits in. And so in February of eighteen thirty one he um, he. Told his four closest friends um, that he was going to do this revolt, and uh, they, um, yeah, and this is a chance where they could easily, easily say, you know, you're crazy, don't do it. They could easily go to the whites and say, you know, that crazy Nat Turner, he's now got a vision saying God's going to kill the white people. You know, I just want to let you know, and you know, you might get rewarded, you might get. None of them did. All four of the people he asked to join joined the rebellion. They kept it a secret. And for the next six months or so, they're basically trying to figure out how to start the revolt. The original plan is to start it on July 4th, right? You know, Independence Day, the day all men are created equal, that Nat Turner was going to start the revolt then. Although when July 4th came, Nat Turner himself said he got sick. He was worried. Um, so he, they didn't do it. He called it off. In August, another sign came, and this time it was, it's a weird sign, I don't know exactly what it's from, I think it's from a volcano, um, but the sun appeared a blue-green, according to some accounts, and there are various accounts across the eastern United States where they see this, it wasn't just a localized phenomenon, it was a, uh, I think in New Orleans, it was certainly in Richmond and other places, um, and he took that, There's, there it is, God really wants him to start the revolt. And so the next weekend, um, they started the revolt. But at that point, the revolt was really, really um, very small. Right. And why did he want to keep it so small? I mean, I would think you'd want a whole bunch of people to revolt. You know, it's obvious. You know, there's a couple ways you have a slave revolt. And one way you have a slave revolt is you sit there and say, okay, we're all getting oppressed. That's a terrible thing. So let's get together, get everyone, and we're all going to up. And there are stories of uh, great slave revolts like this, uh, especially in Latin America. Um, there aren't any slave revolts quite like that in the United States. Um, you know, he didn't want to do that. And my suspicion, and, and I think I've got some basis for this, is because he was very careful thinking about what blacks would do when they heard about the revolt. He understood that someone, of course, joined the revolt. I mean, if no one would join the revolt, it was just doomed to failure. But he also understood that some wouldn't. One of the early newspaper articles on the revolt had had one uh, someone objecting that this revolt wasn't going to work. How can we have a slave revolt when at the beginning there's only four people involved? Or even by the time of August, there's only six people involved. Anyway, when the, this potential recruit objected, uh, he was answered by the, the, the rebels by saying, and I'm quoting here, the Negroes had frequently attempted some other things and confided their purpose to several, and that it always leaked out. But his, Turner's resolve, was that their march of destruction should be the first news of the insurrection. So one of the great challenges standing in front of slave rebels was keeping it a secret. I mean, you know, and it's not just there's always going to be someone who's going to turn it over to uh, to white authorities. You, you know, there could be just a person who sits there and says, you know, I actually heard about a slave revolt, and, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic to it, but this one person, I don't want to die, so I'll tell them. But whatever it was, and it's unclear what they're thinking about in this, in this really um, tantalizing. 
Right. And I, it's, I think it's in your introduction. That's one of my, uh, I, I don't know if I should say laugh out loud moments, but I love that part where you write something, you know, historians often don't realize organizing a slave revolt that's successful is really hard. Oh, here we are. Page eight, you write, it is really hard for a slave revolt to succeed. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and it's one of those things that unless you say that, you know, and certainly this is a book that I was trying to write in a way that it'd be accessible to, you know, a broader audience. Um, you know, one of the things you got to do is you got to remind people this is not, you know, while the aesthetics of the revolt and the politics of the revolt might be very attractive today, uh, the practicality of the revolt, which is something the rebels themselves were very aware of, made it a completely different kind of experience. So once the revolt, could you tell us, so the revolt starts, what is the first stage of it like and what role did Nat Turner and another rebel will play? And you, you talk, and I mean, th- this chapter and, and the third chapter, it's it's really just chilling, the, the violence that you describe. Um, it's, it's horrific. You know, I kind of got chills as I read it. But, um, you know, so they, they go through and they, they have this idea we're going to kind of engage in this general massacre. This will help to, to lead to this rising. That's their hope. 
how then, though, as they're conducting this massacre, they're meeting a bunch of slaves because most of the people they massacre are, are slave owners. How do these slaves react to the presence of Nat Turner and his forces? Yeah, this is this is this is this is where they rolled the dice. They they said, you know, we they were trying to figure out a way to make this revolt work, and they couldn't. They were like, well, it doesn't really make sense. We got four guys. They got you know thousands. They got the army. We don't have anything. They said, that, well, the only way we can get it to work is if we have a grand general uprising. But remember, they said we can't have an uprising where we tell everyone about it in advance because the whites will find out. So how are we going to get the blacks to all of a sudden? One of the things they do, and I'm the first one to point to this, is they come up with the idea of if we start killing whites, including women and children, you know, blacks will see that this really is the time to uprise. This is, you know, the fear that we have of whites is going to sort of dissipate. Now, this isn't guaranteed to work. I don't think it's a very likely plan, but then again, you sit down and think about it for a couple of years, it's hard to come up with a very likely plan to succeed. But they said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to try to make it easier for the blacks to join us. And they thought this, this would work. Now, some blacks did join. You know, they got, they certainly had, uh, you know, 60, maybe 80 people with them. Uh, by the end, not everyone was especially willing. Uh, not everyone was an active fighter. But, you know, they certainly had dozens. And these were mostly, uh, they were all, the people traveling with them were men, very few exceptions, and young men. Again, with very few exceptions. So people did rise up. This is the moment where all the frustration and anger we've had at the system of slavery, you know, we can finally do what we've wanted to do. But at the same time, other people didn't. You know, and the slaveholders are going to write about this later, uh, not later, I mean, you know, weeks later, uh, as they're trying to figure out what happened. And they're going to say, you know, the one, uh, a month later in the Richmond Wick, uh, there's a, there's a, a person wrote a letter saying, quote, I must here pay a passing tribute to our slaves, but one which they richly deserve. It is that there's not a single instance of disaffection in any section of our county, save on the plantations which Nat, Captain Nat visited. And to their credit, the recruits were few, and from the chief settlements among them, not a man was obtained. So he's saying, at the big plantations, no one was recruited. And I think you go through and you look at some of the big plantations that Nat Turner's men visited, and like... Uh, there were new Harris has uh, has you know something like eighty slaves and he didn't and there's no evidence that any slaves from New Harris's plantation joined. Uh, so this is not I mean it's not completely right because there were a couple of people who joined the revolt who um, weren't from plantations that Nat Turner visited. Certainly there were people who tried to join the revolt, um, but not many. The basic idea here I think is is more right than wrong. Um, there, there it was very hard, and 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 the the revolt was basically rolling the dice and saying that the blacks would rise once they heard that there was an army of of, of blacks killing uh, killing whites, and it didn't happen. Um, and and so this, you know, it's going to take a day or two for the revolt to be put down, but it never gets that sort of power that some of the revolts had. Never had thousands of people involved, which could have happened. I mean, Southampton County is a county where you've got a fairly even split in the population between uh, African-American people and, uh, and whites. But the, the vast majority of the blacks, I think, you know, and from what we can see, most of them are going to be trying to lay low and stay, you know, stay, uh, not get involved. So, so there's going to be people who join, there's going to be people who don't join, and there's going to be people who are divided. One of the great stories I love is the story of Thomas Haycock. Um, Jack and Andrew had been at Catherine Whitehead's plantation, and they fled. You know, the rebels come and start killing people. These are these are young boys, uh, probably early teenagers, maybe you know, 10, 11, 12, whatever. They fled, and one of the places they go is to Thomas Haycock's house. Thomas Haycock's a free black. And he sits there, and they say, they say what should we do? And he basically says, uh, Thomas Haycock. Thomas Haycock basically says, well, if Nat Turner says, you got to go, you got to go, you got to join him. And he says, not only that. If you wait a second, I'm going to get some food, get my coat on, I'm going to join you guys. So he turns to his wife and basically says, get me some food. And she basically starts saying, no, don't do it. Are you crazy? <laughs> it's not going to work out well. And so you see these divisions happening even within a single family in the black community. Someone who's on the outskirts, a free black, who's like, doesn't necessarily have to join, joins. But then his wife is sitting there saying, you know, don't do this. Don't leave me and our child. 
Right, and how is it? I, I mean, how is it finally put down? Well, the um, uh, the whites uh, start chasing uh, blacks. I mean, basically, whites flee from their houses once they hear that this happens, and they gather in woods and wherever. Um, but eventually, some houses become strongholds, and the families gather there, and then uh, basically start riding after white men start riding after the rebels, and uh, the rebels are making their way. Jerusalem. They um, are, are, are chased by these guys, and eventually one group of them uh, catch up to them while they're on James Parker's farm. They're recruiting at James Parker's farm. Um, there's actually a group by the gate, which is away from the farm, uh, a group of rebels. Those rebels are dispersed, which isn't surprising because they're sort of the more hesitant rebels. Uh, then this the revolt then you know there was this this great fear among the white population and groups of whites started to to massacre blacks but then they stopped um could you tell us a little bit more what what stopped that process
any court going to find him responsible? No. It's completely, it, it, it's a time when whites really could act brutally to blacks. And I think, you know, there's there's an incredible fear. One of the things I talk about in the introduction is, you know, so something that they didn't have a word for at the time, the genocide. The idea that the whites could start just killing blacks, the entire black population was something that was on people's radar at the time. It was it was something that people were afraid of. I mean, when I got the title for my book, The Land Shall Be Deluged in Blood, this is the vision people have. It, the book is not about, the, the title actually is not about the blacks killing whites. It's actually about the whites killing blacks. That's where that quote comes from. It's a great quote. But, um, so what happened is the slaveholders started realizing that their property was really vulnerable. You know, think about this. It's in today's society, if you were all of a sudden going to get rid of real estate, you're going to get rid of the stock market or something. That's how vulnerable people were. And so the, 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 the slave owners started trying to figure out ways to protect their slave property. And, you know, initially, one of the things they did is try to move it from this system where people were getting killed. Um, just, you know, we might think of it as lynching and extra legal, extra legal procedures. You know, you just find someone in battle, you capture someone in battle, and you kill them. The, um, ultimately, they wanted to move it into a judicial process, and leaders were able to do that. And then once it got into the judicial process, one of the things that's notable is how few people are going to be killed. Um, you know, they had a lot of protections. Uh, the, the slave owners gave the slaves a lot of protections. There were people who had their court cases thrown out because the indictment was drawn up incorrectly. You know, they were they were accused of treason. Uh, you can't accuse a slave of treason. They're not a citizen. How can they be treasonous? You know, like, but so what happens? Those guys are let go. I mean, it's amazing uh, what uh, how much the leaders were trying to make the revolt seem small. And the reason I'm ar- I argue in my book is not because they were especially sympathetic to slaves and slaves' plight, but because they were worried about the dangers that could come from a white population that would feel free to kill African Americans. Um, and so that is, um, uh, they, I, I argue that they were very successful. And in fact, one of the things I argue is that the number of blacks killed after the revolt is much lower than any of the estimates that people have had for the last hundred years or so. When people have looked at the numbers, it's much, much higher. And I think that the numbers, uh, the number of people killed after the revolt without trials is probably in the 30s. Uh, and so the total number of African Americans killed in the revolts, when you count trials and not trials, is going to be actually about the number of uh, whites killed. It'll probably be somewhere in the 50s. It's uh, sort of a remarkable, uh, a remarkable thing, which... You know, is, is not how we imagine our world, certainly not how people portray it or think about it. And, you know, given so much of what we know about African American history and the sort of uh, the violence that came from much less provocation, it's sort of surprising to see that the numbers were um, as low as they are. And you mentioned the the importance and the power of, of slaveholders in shaping the trials. Could you tell us how they shaped the narrative of the revolt that came out of the trials? Prosecuted. In fact, 
Excellent, excellent. Now, what I um, and you've done a great job with the narrative of the the book itself and it, this kind of historiographical examination and, and d- description of how all this went down. And one thing also I, I liked about this book, and one reason I thought it would be you know interesting for the Christian Studies channel to look at, was you have this chapter eight entitled Communion that looks at how the rebellion affects local churches. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your findings there. Black members. 
your letter of dismission. I said, you're out of here. And a couple months later, the lights come back and say, actually, well, we still want to be part of the church, and that was all well and good. But ultimately, that vision of not having the entire black community set against slavery and not figuring out a way to have community with black community, with the black community, the whites ultimately came to accept, I think, what the what the uh, what the slave leaders, uh, the slaveholders were, uh, were were arguing, which was Nat Turner's revolt I found it fascinating, and it's uh, as your whole book. And one thing that I think is particularly interesting. One reason I wanted to interview you about about your book in particular is, I mean, it, it can't help but but have some connection to um, the complex racial what can I say context we face now in the United States. And you recognize that in the book in your conclusion. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what message do you think this rebellion has for us today. Excellent. Well, and I, like I said, this is a, a, a very rich book, and it's hard for us to do justice in, in just one hour. But I, I think we've got we managed to to hit a lot of your your main arguments, and I really did find this this fascinating. Um, and I I want to end then uh, with our traditional question: What are you working on now? Excellent. Well, it sounds fascinating. Well, thank you again, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.